From KOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today Matthew Worsner returns for a history lesson on the formation of the unicameral. Part of me says, yeah, absolutely, Omaha should get more votes, it should get more say, but everybody should have a vote, and that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody in alliance should have their vote count less than ours does. Uh, The flip side of that is, Somebody in alliance pays less tax dollars than we do, and they have less people. Maybe they should get less of a vote. I I don't know, and I don't think there is a perfect system. I think having the two houses does work really nicely to make sure that people are fairly represented. I don't think the unicameral does as good of a job. Worsner talks about why Nebraska's unique nonpartisan state legislature came into existence and how its ability to function compares to its original intent. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. Riverside Chats relies on your listener support and the best way to ensure continued coverage of arts, ideas, politics, all the local stuff that you listen to this show for is by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, or whatever you can afford. What, what, do, we, what do you think this show is worth? We got over 100 episodes in our backlog. We're aiming to make a lot more. We want to keep the show at the quality that you expect, and in fact, to improve it, to go beyond what you expect. So please consider becoming a supporter by clicking on the link in the show notes for this episode. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with our resident historian, Matthew Wersner, about the origins of Nebraska's unicameral. The unicameral was created as a basis of government that is not ruled by either of our two parties. It stemmed from the belief that the two-house system was outdated, inefficient, and unnecessary. Matthew Worstner is here today to talk about how Nebraska developed its unicameral, how it passed, and how it holds up to its vision of a less polarized governing body. Here is our conversation. All right, so we are here today to talk about the origins of the unicameral, which I think that, I don't know, the state legislature, I can't tell how much people generally know about the state legislature. I think a lot of people kind of just know somebody who has run for it, and that's sort of your in. But there's a lot of people who I think barely have any understanding that we even, like, have a local government. So, yeah, I I agree with you. I I know very little about the unicameral. I think, like, every little kid who took civics class learns... Nebraska has a unicameral, and the federal government doesn't. And then we learn about the requirements to be in the the federal government Congress. But I didn't know what the requirements were to be a state senator before I started looking into this. That's how little I know about ours. Well, you know, it's... I'm not saying, like, we absolutely should teach kids this. That's a good thing. But when you're, like, in sixth grade... It doesn't mean anything to say, we have a unicameral, which is very exciting. No, and I, I I think as well, the point is always made that, oh, Nebraska is so unique and different because they have this. But I don't ever remember having any conversation about, is this a good thing? Like, should we have this? Why do we have this? Why is this better or worse? And... You know, me being the cynical person, as I was researching this, I'm like looking through all of these different stories telling from the government telling me how wonderful and great the unicameral is. And I'm like, that means it has to suck. It has to be consensus scares you. Yeah. The government would only tell me that it's great if that means (laughs) it's not great. Well, okay, so I don't know a ton about the origins of it, but my understanding is it comes out of a frustration that I've aired on this show almost every week, which is that the polarized 
partisan way of doing things often is shooting yourself in the foot instead of actually trying to address any real issues. Yeah. And I, you know, there's what I saw was there were a lot of the same arguments over time for why we should have a unicameral and the same arguments for why we should have a bicameral. Um, Some of them I get, I see the logic, other ones I don't. Um, and I, I, I did a lot of research about, like, what proposals were back then and what proposals are today. And at the end of the day, I don't know if you and I are going to come away with a conclusion that this is, this is good or bad. That's, so it's like a normal episode. Yeah, absolutely. Do we have any laughs as big as uh, William Jennings Bryan getting carried out on the shoulders <laughs> of everybody after making a speech about the gold standard? I, I, don't, I don't know. I <laughs> And I, I love doing that. I love finding weird things about the players. I, I think I found a couple, but I don't know that there's any that interesting, oh, unfortunately. Man. I think about that sometimes and just laugh. I, You know, what else did you have to do back then? <laughs> okay, so the key players, they emerge roughly what time in Nebraska history are we talking when this – or I guess it doesn't even start in Nebraska, does it? No. So I um, – I, I, I guess let me let me give you the very broad picture. The government um, in the state of Nebraska is governed by a constitution just like the federal government. The Nebraska constitution says that the legislative authority shall be vested in one chamber, whereas the federal government constitution says it shall be vested in a Congress composed of a Senate and a House of Representatives. Um, the principles from the United States Constitution date back way before 1789. So um, the earliest that I could find really of any relevance was in the 1200s, where whoever the king in Britain was, um, he called on the lords and asked for the advice and um, input from the various lords on certain issues relating to the government and relating to Britain. That's kind of close to the language that we use today for the Senate who provides advice and consent on things and who was very similar. Um, So I don't know anything about 1200 politics. Oh, me neither. Uh, okay, so, I mean, like, were there parties? Were there, like, was there the... Basically, because I, I guess I, I don't... I've asked a lot of people, including people in Congress, maybe they're the worst people to ask this <laughs> question, but, like, w- is there a, a tangible benefit to having parties is something I've, I haven't really come across a good answer for. I don't, I don't know. Back then, though, I think the answer was no, because before... And I don't do English history at all. Nothing happened in my mind before 1776, apparently. Um, But my my understanding was prior to 1215, which is when the Magna Carta was signed, the English government was just the monarchy. And then when the Magna Carta was signed, that created like the legislative branch in, um, in England. And then that's gone through some changes over time. And what the the British ended up with was a House of Lords and a House of Commons, which is kind of exactly what it sounds like. One is for nobility and one isn't. Um, 
that model is kind of loosely what the original colonies came up with. Um, way back when did they have parties? Well, I don't know. Why didn't you ask me that question a week ago? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Didn't prepare myself. <laughs> so if we, if we skip forward 400 years, though, um, the Virginia colony is really the closest example to what the federal government has today. Um, but the, the origins of the Virginia government is, is really interesting um, for reasons that have really nothing to do with Nebraska's unicameral. Um, so Virginia was created by a private company who got a charter from the British government to go and create a colony. And as part of this charter agreement, and the, the, what the colony was able to do was give away 50 acres of free land to anybody who immigrated to, um, to the Virginia colony. That's a lot of money to just give away. Yeah. And the only people who are going to be making that voyage in the first place from Britain to the colonies are rich people. And so I, I tried to do some sleuthing to see if I could put some numbers to it. And Google apparently doesn't go back that far. Hmm. But what I was able to find was in 1850, the average per acre value for land in Virginia was $8. So that adjusting for inflation from $18.15 to now, the, the Virginia government, if it were 1850, gave away $11,000 of land to people who were already rich. Okay. It, probably, it's, it just doesn't work because inflation doesn't work over the course of 400 years like that. But if we look at it in today's dollars, the Virginia colony essentially gave people who were already rich $250,000 of land. And then said, the only people who are allowed to vote are landowners. And so it's... What was the motive? Like, is the idea that they will create a trade that will be profitable? Or what was, what was the motivation behind that? Yeah, Vir Virginia um, is tobacco, right? And mm -hmm. so the, the idea is bring people to the colonies. The colonies will um, produce wealth for the monarchy. And so here we've got people who, if we tell them, okay, you have to pay your own way, but we'll help you basically with the startup once you get here, that incentivizes business. But on a, from a governmental standpoint, what it does is it further deepens the aristocracy who controlled the government back then. Um, but that original, interestingly enough, that original Virginia colony government was a unicameral. It was just the Virginia General Assembly. And then, like 40 years later, still in the 1600s, the House of Burgesses, whatever on earth that is, was, was formed. And so what Virginia then has from that point forward is the longest continually running government in the, I don't want to call it the United States, but in the United States. Um, and so for 400 years, they've had these two houses in some way, shape, and form, um, that system of these two governments is what became the basis for James Madison's plan, the Virginia plan, for what the legislative body is going to be like. And his plan was what? So he, 
uh, let's back up a little bit still. So, oh, okay. so, so 1776 is yeah. not when the government starts necessarily, the government that we know today. But what happened was the colonists secede and they create the Articles of Confederation, which are what governed for the first couple years before the government we have today. And that Articles of Confederation had a unicameral. They didn't have the ability to raise taxes and people didn't like it. And so in the Constitutional Congress in the 1780s, everybody comes together with all these different proposals. And Madison and some guy named Edmund Randolph come up with this Virginia plan, and other people have different plans. These are plans that are sort of like the vision for how we revamp the government? Yes. Yeah, okay. The the players are really interesting, though. this this Edmund Randolph guy, I've never heard of him before, and I want to know so much more about him, and it's really hard to find. But I, in looking into him, and he's, I don't know if you call him a founding father, but he's part of the group, and he was the original um, attorney general. He's a lawyer. He defends Aaron Burr after, after Aaron Burr does, well, I don't know, whatever Aaron Burr did. Um... <laughs> But so the new government is started and they're having this cabinet meeting, which I assume like everybody's in their their puffy shirts yeah. and their their hats. I'm picturing it's really sweaty. In there. Yes. They're, they're candlelight and all the windows are closed. And somebody stands up in this meeting and says that traitor, Edmund Randolph. Hey, Washington, look, I found his papers and he's been writing to the French government telling the French government how bad the United States is. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Matthew Worsner about the origin of the unicameral. Join the conversation on social media or call in with what issue is on your mind this week in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. So, like, like gossip, basically? I mean, or was this actually treasonous in some way? Well, here's the weird part about it. As only a person in the 1700s could do, Edmund Randolph says, those are fake, but I resign immediately. Ooh. So. I see a connection there. So the story goes that there were Federalists in the original government who said, we want to get rid of this Randolph guy. And so they concocted a story that these papers were intercepted by the British on a French ship and then were turned over to the Americans. I don't buy that for a second because, like, 1,700 sailors who believed in mermaids and Davy Jones' locker, <laughs> there's no way they read these papers. A, they could read. No way. And B, they were like, oh, Edmund Randolph, we know who he is. Let's get these into the right hands. They turn these papers over and then they they somehow make their way to the government. I don't buy it. I'm losing the thread here. Why does this relate to James Madison? Madison and Randolph were the people that proposed the Virginia plan. This okay. is just an interesting tidbit. Oh, just a side note. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, but so, so he eventually then just gets off the radar of all the politics and where it goes from there then? He, um, he eventually resigns because of this and then gets sued by the federal government for $50,000 and pays it. Why? Hmm. I don't know. I want to know so bad. I can't find we'll, it. We'll let this mystery yes. simmer for a little yes. bit. You can come back and tell me the story. So um, Madison and Randolph, they propose a plan where um, the states are going to have uh, – theirs is, is, is uh, bicameral. 
It's based on the idea of a strong federal government. It's totally based on population. It doesn't have a Senate like we know it today where um, each state gets one or two or whatever votes. I don't, I don't know what their specific number was. But that's what they propose. And then the other big proposal was from the smaller states, from New Jersey, um, and theirs is it, – it's an interesting idea. It's unicameral. It's a Senate. The Senate is one vote per state. And then those senators vote for the president. Um, so an indirect system of, of voting for the president like we have today. Yeah, just a, a slightly different indirect system. Yeah. And they they have serious discussions about which one of these are we going to go with. And ultimately, they land on the Connecticut Compromise, which is what we have today. And so who gets the credit? I don't know or care. Um, they're, they're, James Madison gets a lot of credit for things. You know, what's really fun about James Madison that I learned, um, not just the fact that he was on the $5,000 bill. <laughs> and and for hey, let, me, let me show you the $10,000 bill. Guess who's on that one? Reconstruction <laughs> Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase. Oh, that came up in your research. It, I'll that, put mine back in my wallet. It absolutely did. Okay. Yeah. Christopher Lloyd lookalike Salmon P. Chase. <laughs> Salmon? I, I could not make that up even if I wanted to. <laughs> okay, anyway. Um, Madison had this problem where he really wanted to make sure that he, history remembered him kindly. And so he went back and edited his letters that he, and correspondence that he had with people and even forged Thomas Jefferson's handwriting on some of the letters to make himself sound smarter. Well, do you do you know any of the quotes of no what they were? No, it was too far off track. But the, the Madison th- knew all the like, well, I don't even know what it would be. He knew all the Egyptian pharaohs. He, and the the thing that's so ridiculous about Madison is like a typical big government guy. He has no concept of finances and dies poor. And his wife has to sell their slaves in order to pay off some of his debts. And has to. This is the guy who wrote the Bill of Rights, mostly, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, the guy who said, "Let's repatriate all of the slaves in some fantastical country called Liberia, because all Africa is just one big place." Um, he gets most of the credit for coming up with the structure of the government. Is that really fair? No. Was that a long con by him, probably, to get the credit? Yeah, I, I think probably. Well, you heard it here today, folks. Yeah, I, I, I will put... James Madison, he's canceled. Yeah, yeah I, can't, I have officially canceled James Madison. <laughs> um, but so we almost had a unicameral as the way our country works at a federal level. Yeah, and we did at a period of time in the Articles of Confederation have a unicameral. And it, it didn't work for reasons probably completely um, having nothing to do with the structure of the unicameral. The, the Articles of the Confederacy didn't work because the federal government had no power and couldn't raise taxes. But there were proposals and there were discussions about just having one house. And ultimately, I think Madison probably had a lot more sway than whoever William Patterson is. And, and Madison's name is part of the reason why we have what we got today, because he had the bigger reputation at the time. I was trying to get Ben Nelson to tell me what exactly is the benefit of having two houses, of having a Senate, essentially. And he 
didn't really have much of an answer other than its tradition. Yeah, and, and it's it's 800 years of tradition, even if this goes back to the Magna Carta days. But I think one of the things that I saw come up as opposition to switching to unicameralism, it can be said another way as why bicameralism is good, and that's that it ensures representation for people in less densely populated areas, so primarily rural populations. Which is, which is kind of spin, because it's saying we're yeah. going to underrepresent highly populated areas to overrepresent lower low populated areas. Yeah, and and as as people from Omaha in such a such a widely spread out state like Nebraska, it, it, it's hard to know which is which is good and which is bad, um, because as where so much of the tax dollars come from, part of me says, yeah, absolutely, Omaha should get more votes, it should get more say, but everybody should have a vote, everybody should have a voice, and that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody in alliance should have their vote count less than ours does. But uh, the flip side of that is somebody in alliance pays less tax dollars than we do, and they have less people. Maybe they should get less of a vote. I, I don't know, and I don't think there is a perfect system. I, I think it is it is what we have. I think it having the two houses does work really nicely to make sure that people are fairly represented. Um, I don't think the unicameral does as good of a job. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, there, some of the arguments that, that are brought up when Nebraska – is thinking about switching. Which is roughly when? The 30s. Is, 1930s. Yeah, that's when the, the big time, um, when this change actually happens. But some of the arguments that are brought up are ridiculous, in my opinion, for, for why the unicameral is better. Okay, maybe let's set the stage and let's get into those here. So who are some of the big proponents? How does it come up? So um, when Nebraska is formed in 1866... The, or the 1866 Nebraska Constitution actually is bicameral, and it says Senate and House of Representatives. Um, we, we had substantially more senators and representatives than we do now. There were, I, I think it was like 100 in one body and 50 in another. Um, our Constitution was modeled after Iowa's Constitution. Why? And why not the federal government? I, I don't know. Because there's – and that's actually wildly annoying to an extent because, like, the federal constitution, Article One is this, Article Two is this, Article Three is this. Nebraska's is not that way. Is it standard for other states to model it after the federal government? I have no idea. Okay. I, I probably – if I was going to bring that up as an issue, I probably should have looked. <laughs> well, I mean, like Iowa, I guess it's probably just because it's close and there's like a kinship with the Iowans, right? Yeah, kind of. And and I was I was perturbed because when I, when I got to the – when I was looking at the Nebraska Constitution, which never read in its entirety ever – um, I, first thing I did was go to Article One because that's where I thought the legislature would be, and sure enough, it wasn't there. I had to go to Article Three, which is where I thought um, something else was going to be, and, and so I was all kinds of confused. And we don't really learn about the Nebraska Constitution, but anyway, um, 1866, we've got the bicameral, and then in the early 1900s, people start to say, "Hey, let's let's think about switching to." a unicameral and it doesn't really go anywhere 
Why were they saying that? What were they were they looking at polarized dumb politics like we have today? <laughs> that that was that was the big uh, one of the big things that was brought up in the the 30s. Um, the other thing that was brought up before then was um, like efficiency, basically that that we can get things done cheaper, better, faster with one house versus two. Because you can literally reduce the body and the amount you have to pay the people in the body. Yes. Okay. And so in the 30s, they finally get some traction when someone named George Norris, um, who's a senator in the, the federal government from Nebraska, says this, this is what we want to do. And I've never heard of George Norris, like apparently most of the people in, in this one. Um, he is a... In, He's a graduate of the Northern Indiana Normal School, which they changed their name conveniently later to Valparaiso University. Um, I a wa- shame. I know, right? I really wanted to dislike this guy, and I did everything I could to try to find something nasty about him. Why? Why? What's your problem with Norris? I, just, I thought it'd be fun. Oh, okay. You wanted a villain. So uh, truthfully, what happened is one of the very first things that I read about him was he opposed World War I because he said the, quote, bankers are trying to get us into World War I, mm-hmm. which... You thought was coded. I thought that was code for anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. and I couldn't find a shred of evidence about that anywhere. And I thought, oh, here's a perfect opportunity to cancel another person, <laughs> and, and I, I couldn't do it. But he, this guy, is a, he's a pretty standard... Um, Turn of the century, 1920s and 30s, uh, progressive. He's um, he's very strongly in favor of prohibition. He's a very big government guy. He's he- heavily in favor of regulation and the government taking over businesses. Um, it, it's a fun juxtaposition, though, because this is the guy who eventually goes on to say the government in Nebraska needs to be smaller and more efficient, but has also said that the government needs to take over and control all the railroads. But is that an argument essentially that the federal government maybe should have more power and as a result states should have less? I, I didn't really – I, I kind of thought the same thing and I didn't really ever see anything close to that. Um, he I, – I, I didn't find anything where he was proposing doing anything similar in the federal government. I don't think he was trying to limit the power of the state government or anything like that. I think he ultimately, if I had to assign him a flaw, was an idealist and not very practical. And so the ideas that he came up with, I I don't know if in reality they were as good as, as he thought they were. Okay. Um, he actually even said that philosophers should serve on the Supreme court and not lawyers. That's one of the top five most ridiculous things I've ever heard. Well, I mean, you, well, I think to to go to your kind of compliment, kind of criticism there, the idea would be you want people who think outside the box, who are innovative in the way that they see the world, but you also want them to have an understanding of how laws work. Yeah, and, and the the big Supreme Court can be a little theoretical. They have the ability to be a little bit more academic. Um, down down in. The, the court that I deal with, it doesn't really work that way. The law is what it is. I, I don't have the right to say it's this is what it should be. Um, the big Supreme Court maybe has a little bit more of an ability to do that, and being a person with a philosophy background might actually be a little bit helpful. 
Um, not not for what I do in the real world, though. Yeah. Um, he he also this Norris guy was was strongly anti-corruption, and he believed that the the Democrats and the Republicans were both equally corrupt and equally terrible. Was he a member of a party? He was Republican for most of his career, even though I think today we consider him a hardcore Democrat. Yeah. Um, but he kind of kind of like um, I think like John McCain a little bit. He's a Republican. He's got his Republican principles, but he's not afraid to speak out against people on his same side. And that's what this guy did. And that's eventually what ended his career is the fellow Republicans in the government were able to to do some scheming and conniving to help get him out. Um, Said he was writing mean letters to France. (laughs) Exactly. I'm talking with Matthew Worsner about the origin, passage, and implementation of Nebraska's unique nonpartisan unicameral system. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is, and please leave us a review. Matthew Worsner is here today to talk about how Nebraska developed its unicameral, how it passed, and how it holds up to a vision of a less polarized governing body. Here's the rest of our conversation. Well, so, I mean, that that's exactly the kind of issue, though, where... When we're generally told about the benefits of a unicameral, it's to reduce that kind of just sort of like dumb bickering that yeah. happens. Like who's going to fall in line, right. the battle lines of like wedge issues that distract from actually ever talking about anything. This right. The ability to demonize a party as opposed to just like, yeah, it's a bunch of people who have different thoughts. Yeah. And what's really interesting about this Norris guy too is he sees through a lot of that stuff and he says Republicans and Democrats are equally bad but I don't believe in a third party because the third party will also become corrupt that's a little peculiar I mean that's kind of like what I do is you just throw up my hands and say I don't know what the solution is sorry well I mean but the the idealism there would be ideally in a perfect world you have no parties because you have people who have thoughts that they can come to on their own instead of like getting handed here's here's the docket of what you believe and then you go with that but unfortunately the Republicans were able to beat him down so much that in the last election that he ran in he actually ran as an independent which I don't think independent qualifies as a third party, so I won't call him hypocritical. Yeah, that's, that's a non-party. Yeah. He, he spends most of his career, I, I guess, as an antagonist. Um, but so he's, he's the big proponent of the unicameral in Nebraska, and he drives all over the state. Um, he really cares about this. Why did he care? I can't find that answer. But it's isn't it not a way to take away a little bit of the power of parties? Uh, yes, and so, that I mean, was I can see why that'd be a driving force for him. And and he's he was widely considered, I guess, even though I'd never heard of him, to be like one of the best senators ever. However, you rank th- these people, he's supposed to be at the top. And so him saying this is a thing I want to do had a lot of sway. And he was unwilling to compromise on the fact that the unicameral had to be nonpartisan. I like that. I, I think that's it's good that he stuck by his principles because I think that has served us well. Um, but he had 
Oh, this is letters, not numbers. One, two, three, four, five. You have five points that he said were good about the unicameral and bad about a bicameral system. Um, and uh, I'll let you tell me if you think they're ridiculous or not. Okay. Um, so the first one is the, the unicameral results in clearer, more comprehensible, and increased publicity and renders the entire legislative proceeding cleaner and freer from suspicion. None of that describes the unicameral to me. Well, I think – I don't know exactly what he means by suspicion, but I think you do see more actual debate in a unicameral than you do in a party-controlled system where you don't need to have debate because you got the numbers. And I, to- I totally agree. Um, next one. Excites the interest and attention of the public. I'd say from where we started today, it would be hypocritical of me to say, yeah, we're all really into this. Yeah. Um, Makes possible the definite fixing of responsibility for action or inaction. Maybe. Sure. I mean, it's pretty pretty idealistic and hopeful, but I mean, it doesn't doesn't hurt that, right? I, I guarantee you there are plenty of people in the unicameral who have blamed somebody on the other side of the aisle or someone in a committee for something. So I I don't know that that worked out. Um, His next one is prevents the clouding of issues and eliminates occasion for jealousy, friction, deadlocks, and reprisals between the houses and permits the disposal of questions on merit instead of on peak passion and prejudice. I would say we see a lot of peak passion if you ever watch the live streams. Um, I mean, like his best argument, though, is it is streamlined and it's simpler. Right. And it's easier to actually get anything done. Right. Uh, yeah. OK. But anyway. And the the last one, which I, I totally don't buy, puts an end to shifty practices by which duplicate houses, committees and sets of political leaders can accomplish improper objects and evade accountability for their acts. Yeah, I mean, you, I think he, he was uh, underestimating the ability of shifty actors to find ways to be shifty in new ways. Uh-huh, and there are a lot of interesting ways you can avoid accountability for the pictures that you take in, in the legislative chamber. 100%, yes. Uh-huh. Um, he also says later on that the unicameral system attracts the best talent. I don't know what makes you a talented or not talented legislator, senator, whatever. Uh, but no, I don't buy that for a minute. <laughs> or at least not not drastically in a not in a drastically different sense right. than a bicameral, right? Right. And, and he he is he's a big uh, anti-lobbyist guy and he says having the unicameral system makes it substantially less likely that there's going to be lobbying and special interests who will de- derail Legislation. I mean, what I will say in his favor, though, is if you want sweeping reform, you really got to sell it. Uh, you got to sell the best possible version of the idea. Because, like, if, if you and I were trying to sell this idea and we're sort of like, I don't know if it'll make anyone more interested. I don't know if it will attract good talents. That's that's not a great uh, point to get us to, to get other people to support it. No, but but I, I, I see his points and I get his logic. I just – I don't agree with it because – I think in some ways having the unicameral actually can make it easier because now I don't have to go after people in in two houses. I can go after somebody in one. And if I have $100 to spend on lobbying, I don't have to spend 50 and 50 in two places. I can spend 100 in one place. 
Um, I, I think that that's how it, it ultimately worked out. It, would he have known that at the time? He probably should have. But um, so 1933, he's going around stumping for votes, and the 1934 ballot is where people are voting on this. Um, the interesting thing about Nebraska's constitution is we have initiatives and referendums, and so the the legislature can propose changes to the constitution, or the people can vote on changes, a petition, and have a petition drive and vote on changes to the con- constitution. Um, not how a constitution is supposed to work, in my opinion. It shouldn't be the kind of thing that gets amended and changed 500,000 times. Why? Um, it, it's That's what laws are for. Laws are the ones that are supposed to be tweaked and changed and adjusted. But this is, this is kind of a Ben Nelson sort of like, it's tradition that our constitution doesn't shift kind of answer, isn't it? it, it maybe, but at the same time, I, I think the whole point of a constitution is it's an outline. It's not the details. It's not the book. And by making the Constitution so easily adjustable, it, it's it's changing the, the very fabric of the structure of the government. And the Constitution is supposed to establish the rules. And if we're constantly changing the rules, I, I think that's, that's peculiar. If we want to eliminate um, gambling, I think that that should be a law and not an, an amendment to the Constitution. Um, but so this, what's really interesting about this ballot drive for um, the unicameral is it's paired up with two other initiatives. One is repealing prohibition, repealing the 18th Amendment, and the other one is legalizing a type of, of horse race betting where instead of if somebody loses your money goes to the house there's basically a pool and one of the betters wins and everybody else loses so <laughs> that's a nice variety i guess of, but, of issues I, and i i think that that bears out my point that this is what's in our constitution is the type of horse race gambling <laughs> you're allowed to do not the slaves should be freed everybody's got the right to vote it's horse racing okay i see your point um, but so there's, there's, there's two issues that I think people care more about than the unicameral. And there's, there's some um, scholarly debate about whether or not those two other initiatives actually had an impact in helping garner votes for the unicameral. Because the, more people voted. Yes. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Matthew Worsner about the origin and legacy of the unicameral system. Join the conversation on social media or call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind this week in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. The type of horse race betting is called parimutuel, parimutuel and the way that it's spelled, it actually looks kind of close I mean, they're completely different words, but they've both got a U in them, and and they've got an I in them, and they've got an R, and it's really similar to unicameral. unicameral. So yes. You, so this this is a theory that people thought they were voting about horses. Like, I want this unicameral type of horse betting to be legal now. Not not exactly. The 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 idea that the 
horse betting people had was let's just tell everybody to vote yes for everything. And so there were campaigns and ads saying vote yes on everything. <laughs> and, and there's this um, – and I think that was a really brilliant idea because there was a, an article I was able to find from the Beatrice Sun in, the 19, in 1934 that essentially said voters don't care about the unicameral. And um, one, of the, one of the quotes that I pulled out of that was just so unbelievably ridiculous. Um, former Governor McKelvey says, if it's more laws you want and everyone knows we have enough now, then vote for the one house legislature and it will mean more taxes. There's there, that's the quote. I, I, we have too many laws, whatever. So that, that that helps me realize that politics has always been very dumb in Nebraska. Oh yeah, and, but there were um, my my point is I I was actually able to find a survey that showed all of the big newspapers except for two were against it, and so they didn't really run press about it. But there were two newspapers um, in Lincoln that were really heavily in favor of it. And so they were constantly running ads and articles and things in support of the unicameral. Um, but I, I, I saw a lot of debate about why did people vote for it? Was it actually because of the inclusion of the other two ballot measures or not? Um, there's a political science professor who at the time said, no, no way. Look at the numbers. The numbers tell you that that's not what happened, that people people actually voted and cared. So I went and I looked at the numbers. It was pretty close, wasn't it? Um, it was it was 60-40 in favor of the, the unicameral. Um, but so of the three ballot initiatives, the repeal of prohibition, 60-40. The unicameral, 60-40, and then the horse betting was 57-43. So pretty uniform. Yeah, pretty much. But the voter turnout was not great. Um, and ultimately, 20% of the Nebraska population voted in favor of the unicameral. And I, that, to me, does not sound like something that excites the public interest in Wow. So that's, I mean, that's similar, right, to uh, presidential elections even, right? Like yeah. Like 25, 26 is pretty normal. Yeah, kind of. Um, what, what I thought was interesting as well, looking at the breakdown here, um, Douglas County was 85% in favor of repealing prohibition, but only 63% in favor of the unicameral and 80% in favor of horse race betting. I think that actually bears out the point that people in rural counties are afraid of disenfranchisement and people in the big counties um, are substantially less afraid of it. But across the board, I don't know um, that I, I necessarily think that the Nebraska population was super in favor of it. However, every county but eight voted for it. And, and that's that's rural, that's urban, that's pretty much everybody. Um, the people in Lancaster County, though, the, the teetotalers there were very opposed to prohibition. They were 
44% for, 56% against. I don't know what to make of that. That's a topic for a different day, I guess. Um, but I, you know, this is you're right. It's the same gripe that people have with presidential elections, except for the one most recently, is people don't get out and vote, and then they want to complain about uh, who's the president. 20% of the people voted for something, and like 40% of the population who could vote actually got out and voted. I mean, it's it's the same story, different day. Yeah. Um, but so there were there were four primary reasons that I could find that people that supported people voting for the unicameral. Um, the Great Depression focus on cost savings, which I, I have a bit of a gripe with because Nebraskans are pretty frequently penny wise, pound foolish, but whatever. Um, George Norris, who was a well known guy who who was a heavyweight and he supported it. Um, the timing with the other ballot measures, and then everybody seemed to hate the 1932 legislature class. There were all of these stories and articles about people saying how terrible they were. That was something I was going to ask about, because I think Norris was able to find an issue where people felt like they could punish politicians who they don't like, right? Right. And they could, in fact, get rid of a lot of them permanently. Right. And many of the um, the people who were in the prior government ran in elections after the the changeover, and a large portion of them did not get voted back in. If I'm a state senator and I'm about to lose my job, yeah, I probably am going to say that that the unicameral is a bad idea because right. I don't want to lose my thirteen thousand dollars a year. That that's a pretty radical change, though. One, one crop of of senators and representatives do a bad job, so we completely change the whole structure of the government? Well, I mean, I would say, though, if people are generally disengaged, do they care that much about radical change? They're not especially invested in how great things are going. No, but, you know, 80 years later, has switching to the unicameral proven itself to be a boon for the state of Nebraska? I don't know. I think if, we, if we're looking in terms of the idealism of George Norris... Uh, it does. It does seem like a fairer system with better possibilities. Still, don't you think? Maybe his big thing was the the nonpartisanship, which mm-hmm. th- that worked, and that's that's been a very good thing. His second main thing was cost savings, and the the legislature's own website touts how the year before it was like two hundred thousand dollars to run the legislature, and the next year it was a hundred. Big deal. I, I don't I don't really see that as a real expense that I'm s- something that I care that much about. The government needs money to function and making the government cheaper to function at the expense of making sure everybody's fairly represented is not something I'm a, I'm a huge fan of. Other states as well have tried switching to a unicameral and they haven't done it. And there's lots of instances of other states proposing and saying, hey, look at what Nebraska's done. Let's do that. And none of them have passed. And I could only find one, two, three, four, five, six other countries with a unicameral in their federal government system. Does that mean that the majority is right? I don't know. Probably. Well, I mean, a problem that I've thought about with the unicameral is if it's primarily a rebellion against two-party dominance, which 
you know, I've pretty clearly said I'm not a huge fan of that. Same. Uh, it's not especially clear that you can take that mentality out of the way people act toward each other and the way people get elected, the way people run campaigns. And so, I mean, I think that it, it probably prompts a little bit more cooperation, maybe not a drastic difference, though. Yeah, I do think, though, that there's there's some voices in the legislature who, if they're in the minority, they're a lot easier to ignore, especially if they're in the very minor minority, um, because, you know, they don't have the opportunity with such a smaller body to be able to garner support if they're on the fringes. I, I don't know if that's good. I, I think it's I think it's a good idea to force people towards the middle more, and the the unicameral might do that. Um, but you know, ultimately, I think we could have nonpartisan bicameral government. How would that look? Well, I, I think the system that we have now of a Senate where voting is not apportioned based on population and then a House of Representatives that is apportioned based on population, but neither one of them are you allowed to vote for people who, or, or the ballot doesn't show who's Republican and who's Democrat and who's Green and who's whatever. I like that. I think that's a good idea. Um, and I think it's ridiculous to try to propose today to say that the unicameral should be partisan again so people know who to vote for. I, Which is being proposed. Exactly. But I think there's no reason we can't carry forward that same thing to the big government. It's never going to happen in a million years, but why? there's no reason that I can see why we shouldn't do that other than just trying to keep the entrenched people entrenched. Well, and that's what a lot of politics ends up being, right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I don't know. I think we probably, you know, you and I are not George Norris. We're not idealistic enough to try to see the changes right. and at least like, hey, this isn't working. Let's try something new, right? Right. It's tough. It's tough to say that. And it's tough to throw yourself out there and hope that things will turn out for the best. Yeah. And I don't know that I necessarily care about anything that much to drive around Nebraska and and try to get people to vote on it, maybe maybe something having to do with animals, I guess, but I, I guarantee you I would run out of steam. And this Norris guy apparently went to every county and every city and every nook and cranny of the state in support of this and even missed the first day of school in, in the 1934 um, Congress and was in Nebraska instead of Washington, D.C. Um, I, I don't care about anything that much, but you know, ultimately, did his idea work? I, I think so, I suppose. Do I like it? Not really. But it, it did work. Well, so George Norris is still kind of the villain in that you kind of opposed him, but you lost yeah. in your own story that you just nope. con concocted here. No, nope. I, I tried to cancel him. I was not successful in canceling him. I, I take on any challengers in canceling James Madison, though. <laughs> well, thank you for this history lesson. I think it's been illuminating, uh, and I appreciate you coming back on the show. I, I love being here. Thank you. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.